New York, this is Democracy Now! I'm just back in Manchester from Gaza. I'm calling for a full ceasefire to alleviate the suffering of Palestinians. I'm also calling for accountability for war, war crimes committed by Israel in Gaza and accountability for anyone that was complicit in Israel's war crimes by funding them or supporting them politically. And ultimately, I'm looking for a, process, a political process that leads to justice and self-determination for Palestinians. As Israel intensifies its attacks on what are supposed to be safe zones in central and south Gaza, we'll speak with a Palestinian scientist who fled Gaza and just arrived in Britain, where he has dual citizenship. Then hundreds of Jewish activists and their allies shut down the California state capitol in Sacramento Wednesday to demand a Gaza ceasefire. We'll speak with one of them, a descendant of Holocaust survivors who is a former IDF soldier. me how to recognize genocide from infancy, how naked bodies get rounded up for torture and execution, how mass graves smell, how starvation and hate shapes the body, how ethnic cleansing martyred entire lineages and buries the wisdom of the land caretakers. The black and white images are now in color. The stories are live. And in this cycle, we don't need gas chambers because we have U.S.-made bombs. And we'll speak with Ralph Nader, longtime consumer advocate, corporate critic, four-time former presidential candidate, about U.S. support for Israel and his new book, The Rebellious CEO, 12 Leaders Who Did It Right. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Gaza, the death toll from Israel's 90-day bombardment has topped 22,600, with another 7,000 people reported missing, presumed dead. Health officials in Gaza say Israel killed at least 162 Palestinians over the last 24 hours, as the IDF intensifies its attacks on refugee camps in central and south Gaza, areas once deemed by Israel to be safe. Doctors in Gaza described horrific conditions inside the few hospitals still open. Yasser Khan is a Canadian ophthalmologist who's working in the European hospital in Khan Yunis. Almost every hour someone's coming in with an explosive injury or a serious injury. People are losing their legs, their eyes, their lives. And the people, the healthcare workers are working here 24 hours every single day with nothing, with no resources, nothing, no, no medications, uh, anesthetics, everything is out. Israeli officials have reportedly held talks with a number of African nations, including the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Rwanda and Chad, about accepting Palestinians pushed out of Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and some of his cabinet members have promoted what they call voluntary migration from Gaza. But Palestinians and human rights groups have decried the plan as ethnic cleansing. This comes as Israel's ambassador to the United Kingdom, Tsipi Hotoveli, has openly embraced destroying the whole of Gaza. She made the comment during an interview on the London radio station LBC. 
one of the things we realized that every school, every mosque, every second house has an access to tunnel. So this is, and, and of course, ammunition. That's an argument for so, destroying the whole of Gaza, every single building in it. So do you have another solution how to destroy the underground tunnel city, that this is the place where the terrorists hide? Meanwhile, the Biden administration's criticized South Africa for filing a genocide case against Israel at the International Court of Justice. National Security Council coordinator Admiral John Kirby was asked about the case on Wednesday. South Africa's filed this 84-page lawsuit against Israel, accusing them of genocide. Israel says that this is blood libel. Does Washington agree? And where does this put Washington and Pretoria? We find this uh, submission meritless counterproductive and uh, completely without any basis in fact whatsoever. In other news from Israel, an Israeli woman who was held hostage by Hamas for 51 days is calling on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to declare a ceasefire. Aviva Siegel spoke to PBS NewsHour. But he can't keep the war, the war going and get the hostages out. He needs to keep—he needs to go to a ceasefire and then— get them out, and he needs to get them out now, as quick as possible. The Iraqi government is blasting the United States after a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad killed a top commander in an Iran-backed militia. An Iraqi military spokesperson described Thursday's attack as a dangerous escalation and an assault on Iraq. Pentagon spokesperson Brigadier General Patrick Ryder claimed the U.S. was acting in self-defense. This individual was actively involved in planning and carrying out attacks against American personnel. And as we've long said, we maintain the inherent right of self-defense and will take necessary action to protect our personnel. In Iran, funerals have begun for the 84 people killed Wednesday in a pair of bomb blasts in the city of Kherman. On Thursday, the Islamic State took responsibility. The group said two suicide bombers had attacked the crowd who were gathered near the tomb of the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani. The bombings occurred on the fourth anniversary of Soleimani's assassination in Iraq by the United States. In Japan, the death toll from this week's massive earthquake has risen to 94, with over 220 people still missing and feared to be trapped under rubble. Earlier today, an 80-year-old woman was pulled from the rubble more than 72 hours after the quake. Civil rights leader Al Sharpton led a protest Thursday outside the New York office of the billionaire investor Bill Ackman, who helped lead a campaign that led to this week's ouster of Claudine Gay, Harvard University's first black president. Ackman is a Harvard alum and major donor to the university, who's publicly railed against Harvard and other schools for supporting DEI. That's diversity, equity and inclusion programs. Al Sharpton vowed to keep protesting outside Ackman's office. We have started these weekly one-hour protests in front of Mr. Ackerman's office. He has said that the resignation of Ms. Dr. Gay at Harvard is not the end of it. They're going to keep fighting to the NDEI, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's declaring a war on all of us, blacks, women, gays. DEI was designed to bring fairness and equality to people that had been historically marginalized and eliminated. 
Sharpton was standing in front of someone holding a Haitian flag as part of his campaign to oust Claudine Gay as Harvard president. She's the daughter of Haitian immigrants. Bill Ackman helped amplify allegations that Gay had committed plagiarism in her academic work. But now, Bill Ackman's wife, MIT professor Neri Oxman, is facing a plagiarism scandal of her own. Business Insider has revealed Oxman plagiarized parts of her doctoral dissertation at MIT. On Thursday, Oxman apologized and admitted making mistakes. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has sued 12 charter bus companies for $700 million, accusing them of illegally transporting over 30,000 migrants from Texas at the behest of Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Adams accused Abbott of using the migrants as political pawns. These companies have violated state law by not paying the cost of caring for these migrants. And that's why we are suing to recoup approximately $700 million already spent to care for migrants bust here in the last two years by the state of Texas. A new report by House Democrats accuses former President Donald Trump of repeatedly and willfully violating the Foreign Emoluments Clause of the U.S. Constitution. The report found foreign countries, including China, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, spent at least $7.8 million on apartments and hotels at Trump-owned properties while Trump was president. Congressmember Jamie Raskin of Maryland accused Trump of, quote, elevating his personal financial interests and the policy priorities of corrupt foreign powers over the American public interest, Raskin said. Saturday marks the third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. President Biden's planning to mark the anniversary by giving a speech near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, the Revolutionary War site where George Washington and the Continental Army camped over the winter of 1777-1778, enduring harsh conditions. Meanwhile, voters in Massachusetts and Illinois have filed paperwork challenging Donald Trump's eligibility for running for office, citing the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment. Trump is already appealing decisions in Colorado and Maine to remove him from the ballot. Newly unsealed documents related to the deceased convicted sex trafficker and financier Jeffrey Epstein includes a reference to reports that former President Bill Clinton once threatened Vanity Fair magazine against reporting on Epstein. One new document contains an email sent by Virginia Jufri, who had accused Epstein of trafficking her to Prince Andrew when she was 17 years old. In the email, Jufri writes about why she was worried about speaking to Vanity Fair. She wrote, quote, It does concern me what they could want to write about me, considering that B. Clinton walked into VF and threatened them not to write sex trafficking articles about his good friend J.E. Former Vanity Fair editor Graydon Carter has denied the incident ever took place. In Iowa. A sixth-grade student died Thursday in a school shooting in the town of Perry on the first day of classes after winter break. Five other people were injured, including the school's principal. Police say the gunman was a 17-year-old student who came to school armed with a pump-action shotgun and a small-caliber handgun. Police say the shooter died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound.
And in Berkeley, California, police raided the historic People's Park early Thursday morning, ending a long standoff between the University of California, Berkeley and community activists. There were reports at least seven people were arrested. Many unhoused people were displaced. In the 60s, People's Park was at the center of the anti-war and free speech movements in Berkeley. The UC Berkeley officials have now placed shipping containers around the perimeter of the park where the school plans to build new student housing. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Gaza, where the death toll from Israel's 90-day bombardment has topped 22,600, with another 7,000 people reported missing and presumed dead. Health officials in Gaza say Israel killed at least 162 Palestinians over the last 24 hours as the IDF intensifies its attacks on refugee camps in central and south Gaza, areas deemed by Israel to be safe zones. Doctors in Gaza describe horrific conditions inside the few hospitals still open. In a minute, we'll be joined by a Palestinian man who just arrived in Britain after fleeing Gaza. Mohamed Galiani is an air quality scientist who spent nearly three months in Gaza, where he had been visiting family. He just returned to Manchester, England Wednesday, where he has dual citizenship. This is Galiani speaking at the airport after his arrival in Britain. After spending six, five days under Israel's brutal bombing, I made what was to me an impossible choice. One that I've been fearing since the beginning of the attacks, and that was privilege of my British passport to leave Gaza. Um, it's a choice not available to the, the majority of Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, people who are currently suffering from malnutrition, severe dehydration, and an overwhelming public health crisis. As Israel relentlessly and openly pursues the campaign to force all the people out of Gaza, be it by death or forced relocation to Egypt. I actually fear that I may never, we may never see our home again. Mohamed Galayini speaking after landing in Manchester Wednesday, joining us now from Manchester, also the co-founder of Amplify Gaza Stories, which works to share voices from Gaza. Mohamed Galayini, you were in Gaza with your family. You fled first to Egypt on December 10th, and now you're home in Manchester. Can you lay out what you saw? Can you talk about Israel's bombardment of Gaza Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me on. Um, uh, goodness, that's quite a quite a quite a, uh, a, a, a difficult uh, question to answer comprehensively, but I'll I'll try. Um, uh, I guess. Um, sorry, I just need to take a moment. It's 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 um, it was really um, hard to imagine things getting any worse on any particular day but they they did keep getting worse i think that's probably like one way one way to to look at it um can you, you know, start we, off we, by telling us where you were we'll just go through some of the facts yeah, you've gone to gaza to see your family when did you go i uh, traveled to gaza on the 18th of september uh for a extended visit uh both to see my family but also to look at moving back there for work. Um, I've been out of Gaza for almost 20 years now. Um, and, um, you know, the trip was going as, I guess, as planned. On the on the morning of uh, the 7th of October, I had got up quite early to go harvest olives with 
my cousins. Um, and as I, as I woke up, I saw rocket trails uh, that gave me the, t- the first tip off that something was was off. Um, as I guess, as the rocket um, fire lasted into more than an hour, it really started becoming apparent how significant the day was. Uh, then there was a, a bombing, an Israeli aerial bombardment, uh, 50 meters from our apartment that shattered all the glass um, there. And we, um, we at that point, I started taking the decision to leave the apartment because it's actually quite close to the beach, so not a great place to be. And then, then began a succession of uh, of displacements. Uh, first to the, to an apartment about a kilometer away, then to my father's home and IVF centre, then to a hotel in North Gaza that was supposedly a safe haven because of its, you know, shelters, journalists, and aid workers. I've I've since learned that that's been destroyed, as has my father's uh, IVF and uh, uh, centre and home. Um, on the 13th of October, we, you know, with bombing happening all around us, um, you know, we saw tower blocks that uh, housed thousands of people being bombarded for 36 hours. And then eventually um, they were like, brought down um, after this wanton bombardment. Uh, it, it, there was, I mean, destruction everywhere that you looked, uh, wherever you went. And um, yeah, we on the 13th of October, Israel issued a, an order to the population of, of Gaza, an illegal order, I might add, telling people to leave, to go south of Wadi Gaza, the Gaza River. And, um, you know, it set a lot of people into a panic. And anyone that had an ability to leave, uh, a lot of people left. And we were among them. It was, it was um, a, a, a very, very difficult choice then because. Um, you know, because it's like an impossible choice or a false choice between, I guess, your your safety and your home. And then, you know, if if you consider the headlines that you you were um, you were uh, you know the headline about the bombardment in areas of of Khan Yunus in the south that were deemed as in quote safe zones, uh, we found out, as did hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, that nowhere was actually safe in Gaza. And um, I think that's all part of this strategy of uh, terrorizing Palestinians, uh, sowing deliberate confusion until people, like, at the end of their tether, because they have no access to water, uh, scarce food, um, and no access to healthcare. And, 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 you know, people eventually are going to be asking themselves, well, well, where should we we go? And, and, you know, I, I truly... I'm of the belief, and I think there is like evidence suggests that Israel is trying to push Palestinians into the Sinai. They'll deny it, and their supporters will deny it. But I, ultimately, um, Israel is a master of uh, creating facts on the ground uh, and plausible deniability. I guess. Um, I can carry on if you want, right? Recounting. Well, let our me ask or- you something. You're an air quality scientist. Can you talk about the air quality in Gaza with this massive level of bombardment? Um, excuse me. So, so I've got a cough now. And uh, I think throughout my time in Gaza, I had a cough. And I think the coughs are quite common right now. And, and part of that is because of the number of respiratory irritants that are in the, in the air because of the bombardment. So starting with 
the rubble from buildings that when it's bombed are pulverized into fine particles that uh, that every time there's a gust of wind spread in the air and create an elevated level of uh, particulate matter but then but it doesn't stop at rubble from buildings and other explosive residue and and what have you because because you also have um because of the lack of of power uh, right now, people are relying on alternative fuels to both, so for example, solid fuel for, for cooking is so common. So you, you walk down any street and it's thick with smoke from, from countless fires that are being lit just to substitute for gas. And then add to that, because of the lack of uh, transport fuel, people are fueling their cars with, um, with cooking oil that again is not a good substitute for diesel because it has like a higher uh, a worse emission profile that again causes uh, un, you know untold um public health uh harms and um and i think you know th- those are the 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 key the key the key air quality Mohammed, can uh, you, issues right now can you talk yeah. about the israeli so-called fire belts the name of the rapid succession strikes that destroy whole gaza city blocks yeah, it's it's really something horrific to be to behold because you, you know you 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 just you hear the whoosh of a jet and then you hear the the uh, you know the explosion that results from say a one ton bomb that's laid down and then you think okay is that it and then and then you hear ten ten more in quick succession that just like surround or saturate a neighborhood with bombardments and people you know people have nowhere to go so you know so for example the the i i as i was saying we were in this in this location in north gaza next to, to the mukhabarat towers in north gaza by the by the beach and these to- towers were subject to an almost 24 hour successive fire fire belts uh, some people came came to us uh, they came to seek shelter where we were and they said you know, we, we, we couldn't we couldn't leave. We were we were pinned down by bombing all around us. Um, and, you know, it's this massive, uh, indiscriminate use of explosive power in densely populated areas without any regard for civilian lives uh, in those in those areas. And it's, um, you know, it's very. It's very cynical because, um, you know, they, I mean, I think initially uh, an Israeli military spokesperson says we are, we are seeking uh, damage, not accuracy uh, in, in, in their bombing. But then, they, but then at the same time, they, they keep saying we're, our strikes are very targeted and, uh, and um, our strikes um, only focus on terrorist infrastructure or whatever, whatever like, you know, that, that kind of tired terminology of, of terrorism that they, that they use. And, and then, and then later on, we find out that more than fifty percent of the munitions dropped on Gaza were not smart targeted bombs, but rather just yeah. So, so um, it's really hard. I mean, being in it, but also just being around it and hearing, no, knowing that every explosion is another family being killed and displaced and losing their home. Uh, Mohammed, it's, it's really, really... on an Instagram post in early November, you said, really sad to hear that my dear cousin Leila al-Haddad's uncle's family have been killed by the Israeli bombing of their home in Gaza City. Um, 
I didn't know them, but feel your pain, Layla, you write. You said you acknowledged their murder on an interview with BBC Five Live just now, and the presenter tried to mince words that they needed to verify. Your response? Um, again, the ultimate slight or cynical denial of the suffering of Palestinians. You know, on the one on the one hand, we are expected to mourn and um, kind of acknowledge the death of Israelis, and we, and, and, you know, and, and as humanitarians, we do. Um, and ex- expected to accept the Israeli government's uh, narrative of that. But on the other hand, Palestinian suffering and Palestinian deaths that are much more documented uh, are each one is dissected and analyzed ad infinitum to deny deny this de- deny the, the 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 genocide that is going on. And I I, I will call it a a genocide. I mean, I, uh, it's very, it's, it's just, it, it's the ultimate in dehumani- dehumanization. I'm sorry. Um, every, every time I report, uh, someone that I know or someone or a relative that's been, that's been killed by Israel, I'll be asked, but, but do you have, do you have proof that it was Israel? Do you have, do you, you know, we, we can't, we can't verify that surely. So, so that, so we can't mention this. It's, 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 oh, hor- horrible. 80 um, members of your extended family have died in Gaza? Yes. So uh, 15 of my mother's cousins were, were killed in their home in Khan Yunis uh, in early October. Later in October, another 10 of my mother's cousins, uh, 20 of my father's cousins, and and and, and, and others that I've, I've almost like lost, lost track or lost count. Um, and it's just... We, we, I mean, my my coping strategy is is to is in some way to to try and, and not know, but obviously you you know you can't avoid it. Um, I think one of the most um, horrific incidents that really really stood with with us though was um, in late December. Well, on the nineteenth of December, we got the news that uh, six of my cousins, along with their in-laws from the Anan family, so Ghalayini family and the Anan family, uh, who were sheltering in in the, the home of the Anan family in in Gaza City, they'd been surrounded by the IDF for um for for a couple of days, and then the Israeli army went into the house. Um, they separated the men from the women. So, like in, in in that process in itself, in being able to separate men from women, it's telling it's telling in terms of the level of threat or lack thereof. And then, fifteen of the men in the home were shot by the Israeli army. And then they also threw explosives into the rooms that the women were sheltering, and many of them were were injured as well. Uh, this has been. Uh, documented or by the Euromed Human Rights Monitor. It's also been uh, a press statement was issued by the UN Office for Coordination of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, and the Israeli Army has has form when it comes to summary execution executions. They they executed their hostages as they were walking towards them, bare chested, waving waving white flags and. And I, you know, I'm I'm fearful for for everyone. 
I know that's in Gaza from from either an, uh, meeting an explosive death or a death by by trigger happy genocidal soldiers who are like drunk, obviously, on the power that they are wielding and. I wanted to get your response to Israel's ambassador to the United Kingdom, where you have dual citizenship, Tsipi Mm -hmm. Hotaveli, who has openly embraced destroying the whole of Gaza. She made the comment during an interview on the London radio station LBC. One of the things we realized that every school, every mosque, every second house has an access to tunnel. So this is, and, and of course, immunity. That's an argument for so, destroying the whole of Gaza, every single building in it. So do you have another solution how to destroy the underground tunnel city, that this is the place where the terrorists hide? So that's the Israeli ambassador to the UK. Um, can you first respond to Sipi Hotaveli? Of course. Sophia Hotzbelli needs to be expelled from the United Kingdom. She is a purveyor of fake news that is a way of manufacturing consent for Israel's genocidal actions. And it, the UK government needs to expel her as a diplomat. She is, she is a propagandist, not a diplomat. And, um, you know, she, she, is someone that is is you know providing making making the case for Israel to continue with it with this impunity in its in its war crimes and it's all all fake news uh, with no no proof but like in the end if you have a position of power and access to the to the media then you 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 it doesn't you are, you're often unchecked and unquestioned and unfortunately. Um, not all media. I mean, I'm glad the presenter challenged her, but I don't think I don't know how how far the challenge went in that piece. And ultimately, um, ultimately, there's a lot of bad bad journalism going on. And I guess this is like one of the reasons why this is so important to have like independent media like Democracy Now, and also like independent um, uh, voices on social media um, of making sure that the checks and balances when it comes to uh, political statements and propaganda are, are in place. Mohammed, I want to ask you a last question. If you could talk about your decision when you left Gaza, you stayed in Cairo to try to readjust, uh, almost afraid to come home to Manchester. Can you talk about that transition, what you face now, what you're calling for? I mean, so um, my my heart is still in Gaza. I I did not want to leave Gaza because I knew when I was in Gaza, I knew that I could. I was there. I was present in the moment, and the only the only um, struggle that I was facing was that of surviving and telling our story. And now, I guess, outside Gaza, it's it's a much in some ways, it's, it's, it's obviously I, I'm glad to be physically safe. It's a, it's, but at the same time, I have like a very, very heavy weight of responsibility to keep honouring and amplifying the voices of like my my country people in Gaza and and making sure that um, we keep up the political pressure uh, to to make sure that 
you know, that first of all, there's a ceasefire and that Israel, Israel and its allies are held accountable. And so I'm so glad that South Africa has brought this case at the International Court for Justice. And, you know, I think this would not have been possible without the voices of, of millions of supporters of Palestine protesting and protesting in very, very difficult conditions, like a political, a political climate that is so hostile, that accuses you of anti-Semitism, even though it's the last thing that people are, are doing by criticizing Israel. And, and, um, and, and, and I think it's so important to keep up that pressure and pressure. And I'm adding my, my voice to that. And if I can, if I may, maybe just for a moment speak of Amplify Gaza stories, um, an initiative that I set up with with uh, cam- friends and campaigners in in Manchester, where you know we we like ultimately wanted to, we know obviously you know that there's a, a narrative that's predominant in terms of uh, putting the Israeli narrative in front of the Palestinian narrative, and we felt you know there was always space for getting more Palestinian voices out there, and uh, you know so we did this by I I I took testimony, I interviewed interviewed people in Gaza, and we translated it and got it. Either published on social media or on or on in, in, in pushed it to, to other platforms, and it's something that we're continuing along with a like a network of of contacts in Gaza to make sure that um, the Palestinian voices are, are heard, and 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 it's a two way thing as well because we're also working on practical solidarity. Um, so, for example, we have a, a at the moment we're raising money on a crowdfunder to support families uh, cooking uh, hot meals. For their for the for their immediate community, so it's kind of about about ensuring that they have the means for resilience. Because I think right now one part of Israel's strategy is is battering down the, the resilience of Palestinians, so that people are so battered and and broken that they can't like resist through their existence, and and that's what we're trying to do to help them. There's so that. much more to talk about, Mohammed, but we have to end here. Mohammed Galayini is a British-Palestinian air quality scientist, spent nearly three months in Gaza, has just recently returned to Manchester, England. He returned on Wednesday, co-founder of Amplify Gaza Stories. Coming up, hundreds of Jewish activists and their allies shut down the California state capitol in Sacramento Wednesday to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. We'll speak with one of them, a former IDF soldier, a descendant of Holocaust survivors, back in 20 seconds. Regime, we will return by 25 artists from the Middle East and North Africa. The proceeds from the song will be donated to the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We continue our coverage of Gaza as we turn to California, where hundreds of Jewish activists and their allies shut down the California state capitol in Sacramento Wednesday during its first floor session of the new year to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. 
As chants rang out, the activists dropped banners that read, no U.S. funding for Israel's genocide in Palestine. Another banner noted California taxpayers contribute some $600 million to U.S. military aid to Israel each year. The direct action was organized by Jewish Voices for Peace, if not now, and the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network, among others. One of the protesters was a former Israeli IDF soldier, an Israeli Defense Force soldier, who will join us in a minute from San Francisco. This is Metal Yaniv addressing their fellow demonstrators. My elders, state, family had meticulously taught me how to recognize genocide from infancy, how naked bodies get rounded up for torture and execution, how mass graves smell, how starvation and hate shapes a body, how ethnic That's Meital Yaniv addressing Wednesday's protests that shut down the California State Assembly, an organizer with Shoresh, a new Israeli anti-Zionist group based in the U.S. They were born in Tel Aviv. They're a former IDF soldier, which they write about in their new book, Bloodlines. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Meital. Can you talk about why you've decided to take the stand and talk about what you did as an Israeli soldier? and your change of heart. Yes, thank you, Amy, for having me, and thank you for the work that you do. Um, so I was raised in a very, I would say, extremely Zionist uh, family, but also very common way of being raised in Israel. Um, I have a lot of um, war heroes in my family, fallen soldiers, Lehi recruiters, Air Force commanders, um, and the like, Mossad agents. Um, and as um, the child of my father, I was um, recruited into the Air Force. And um, after six months of serving, um, my base was moved from Tel Aviv to the south. This was 2002. And I was asked to send planes to fuel planes that were going into Gaza to bomb Gaza. Um, at that time, I didn't have the language to understand exactly what's happening. But as we returned to the base, I had my first panic attack and couldn't enter the base. And the next day had to come and stand trial. And I was grounded to the base for three weeks. And in those three weeks, I understand that I have to leave the army. And that um, knowing at that moment uh, made me want to take my life because it was so against everything I was taught. Um, and that started a process that I will be in for the rest of my life, which is the undoing of that indoctrination and that brainwashing and the way that the Israeli identity has been merged with the Zionist identity. And what I'm doing with bloodlines and, and the prayer that is bloodlines is to really bring the Israeli identity and Israeli state to a loving and caring death for the liberation of the land of Palestine. What year was that? What year did you bomb Gaza? 2002. So 2002, we're talking about 20 years. Um, and 
You're in a very elite group, the Israeli Air Force. Talk about that. There are actually a number of dissenters within that. For example, uh, the well-known resistor, Yonatan Shapira, um, and others. And what it means for you now to speak out and how much support you have publicly in Israel and maybe privately people who are afraid to speak out. Yeah, um, my... My need to leave the army at the time really came from from um, like my body said no, and and it was it was an elite situation. Like we all want to be in the air force for different reasons. We're also eighteen year olds that um, at the time you know we feel like that the the air force has better conditions and it is considered a perk. Um, and and leaving the army was at that time felt an impossible decision and also. There was no other decision in my body, so I had to follow that. Um, and in terms of being heard, um, I, I, I am trying to be heard as loudly as I can, because I do think that the only thing that is really unique about my experience is that I was raised extremely um, Zionistic and have walked here to the very other shore. Uh, and I remember each step. And from that place, I can compassionately relate to where everyone is at. Um, but to reach voices inside Israel is, is, is extremely hard. I'm, I'm grateful to be a member of Shoresh, and, and that is kind of like the work that we're trying to do here, is really um, find ways to be heard here and there. Um, yeah. I should be uh, more specific. Um, as a former IDF soldier, you were responsible for assigning planes that the Israeli Air Force sent to refuel the other planes that were bombing Gaza? Yes, that was so your job. I was, um, yeah, my job was to send basically fuel planes. But you didn't actually the fly F-16, those planes. I'm assuming. No, no, I was on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can talk about the equation that some critics, pro-Israel advocates make of being anti-Zionist with being anti-Semitic. Yeah, I think the the issue here, you know, I was raised extremely Israeli, which was also meant that I wasn't raised very Jewish, which is also a very common thing. Um, the way that the assimilation into Israeli identity happened within my lineages uh, was to really like remove the Jewishness and really become this like Tsabar heroic IDF soldier um, identity. And from that place, um, it it. It's almost impossible from that place to... Um, sorry, Amy, can you repeat your question? I was just saying, the um, if you can comment on those who say to be anti-Zionist is to be anti-Semitic. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, from that merging, um, you know, the Zionist identity, a part of that propaganda is to really hold it within um, the cage of anti-Semitism. Like every time that we criticize Israel, someone can say you're anti-Semitic. But in reality, there's nothing anti-Semitic about criticizing Israel. Um, the, the, the merging of Israel with Judaism is something that Israel would like us to hold as a way to pr- to protect itself. But in reality, anti-Semitism is a very specific thing um, that, that we are not causing it and we will not undo it. 
and the only thing we can do is to continue to resist it. And at the same time, what Israel is doing right now has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. What Israel is doing right now is a genocide. What Israel has been doing for the past 75 years is apartheid, is occupation. Um, the techniques that are being used in the West Bank are, are, are clearly apartheid techniques that have nothing to do with anti-Semitism. So criticizing that, walking in, in streets that are only for, um, for Israelis that Palestinians are not able to walk on in Hebron, there's nothing anti-Semitic about criticizing that. Like, that is something that we are doing as Israelis. And can you talk about how you are informed by your—by um, <clears throat> the fact that you're a descendant of Holocaust survivors? Yeah, and that is really something that I think has really formed my identity. Um, and that is something also that um, I think really helps with the undoing of it all. Because I really feel that that trauma seed, seed really started there. And that is something that I'm also trying to do in Bloodline, where I start with the story of my great-grandma telling their story of survival. Because in that story of survival, there's also the, the need to escape. And in that need, the, the, the need to assimilate into a new identity of a colonizer, uh, of a settler colony. And, and in the doing of that, there was a, there wasn't, um, a moment of care to take care of what just happened in their bodies. And that became a need to arm ourselves. I mean, I feel like I see it as a fear of, of, of annihilation, also an extreme form of victimhood that is, is in our bodies. And from that place, it's, it's always been very, very hard when I see my elders to, to release the arms and to really tend to that original um, trauma and seed of the Holocaust. Maytal, as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you what message you have for young people like Tal Mitnick, who is a refusenik, who's refusing to um, be an Israeli soldier uh, in the occupied territories, to these young people, and here you are in the United States shutting down the California legislature to the United States, your message. Mm-hmm. Um, my message um, is, first of all, for everyone who can to just find their heart and, and to liberate themselves from this identity that we call an Israeli identity. And there is no need for any one of us to serve in the IDF. The IDF should not exist. The state of Israel should not exist. We can be free without it. We can have a true connection to our heart without that identity. Um, to the U.S. legislators in California, um, you know, the fact that we were even able to take a break while there's a genocide happening is an impossible idea to hold. And in this moment, when you're back from the break, we shut it down on one day, but now you really need to make decisions. And, you know, in the federal level, we are not being heard. So please, I beg of you, make this stop in whatever way you can. Maytal Yaniv, organizer with Shoresh, a new U.S.-based Israeli anti-Zionist group, born in Tel Aviv, former IDF soldier, descendant of Holocaust survivors. Their new book is titled Bloodlines. Next up, Ralph Nader on Gaza, on what's happening today in the world, and his new book, The Rebellious CEO. Stay with us.
Monetaries by McCarthy. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show with Ralph Nader, longtime consumer advocate, corporate critic, four-time former presidential candidate. We'll talk to him about several topics, including his new book, The Rebellious CEO, 12 Leaders Who Did It Right. He's also the founder of Capitol Hill Citizen Newspaper, has been named by Time and Life magazines one of the 100 most influential Americans of the 20th century. But, Ralph, let's begin with U.S. policy in Gaza. Amidst the protests nationwide calling for a ceasefire, senior Biden education official Tarek Habash resigned this week. He's the first Biden appointee over what he called Biden's, quote, complete unwillingness to demand an immediate and permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Biden's facing reelection amidst a broader Middle East conflict. Ralph, you said, quote, Biden and Congress are vigorously enabling the annihilations in Gaza. What do you mean and what do you feel needs to happen? Well, the important thing in, in the U.S. here is to focus on Congress and the White House because they are uh, waist deep in, in this uh, genocidal war uh, in, uh, in Gaza. The Congress is basically a rubber stamp uh, and doesn't even have public hearings as it shovels billions of dollars uh, to Israel. And it's about to pass unless Bernie Sanders and others who are opposed a 14.3 billion with a B dollar uh, uh, appropriation for Israel, military arms and other uh, aspects of the Israeli right wing regime's priorities. And that 14.3 billion dollars is larger than the budget of the Environmental Protection Agency. It's 20 times the budget of the Occupational Safety and Health Agency. It's four times the budget of the National Park Service, which has 300 million visitors. So there is rising opposition uh, to it in the Congress, mostly among Democrats, but not enough. And I think the Jewish Voice for Peace and other valiant uh, people who are resisting should focus more on the Congress. As far as Biden's concerned, it really gives a new meaning to hypocrisy. He keeps saying publicly that Israel should reduce its impact on civilian casualties and let humanitarian trucks in. At the same time, he's sending ships full of munitions and cargo planes full of munitions to Netanyahu. You cannot have uh, humanitarian trucks coming in, and it needs to be about 700 at least a day if you don't have a ceasefire. Because who's going to go in? The, the roads are torn up. They, they can't get to their destination. The hospitals and clinics have been destroyed or disabled. Uh, th- there's no markets. There's no uh, ability to receive uh, these uh, materials. And the Israelis are letting in maybe 10, 20 trucks a day, uh, but they're delaying uh, hundreds and hundreds of trucks ready to come in, which Biden has already paid for. So so Biden is playing Netanyahu's game, but he's trying to get away with uh, highfalutin adherence to international law. We don't hear enough about uh, the violation of international law, U.S. treaties, Geneva Convention. It's as if the U.S. can do anything it wants in Syria and uh, and Iraq, and Israel can continue to bomb uh, repeatedly in Syria and do other violent acts. And the press never raises the issue of law. Without law, you have anarchy. 
You have all what you're seeing now. And the U.S. is very much involved. And people are very concerned about a wider conflict here. The Israelis already struck in Beirut. And uh, you have the Red Sea situation with the Houthi uh, boats. And the U.S. is all over the place. Aircraft carriers, they have 24-7 drones over Gaza. So that'll be a very good record when the, the reckoning comes after this war is over. In fact, you are Lebanese-American, Ralph. Is that right? Your family from Lebanon. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask you a question that relates to this. You know, the protests around Gaza on college campuses around the country ultimately have led to the ouster of two college presidents, Liz McGill at UPenn, and now you have Claudine Gay. And I wanted to ask you about the protest yesterday led by Al Sharpton outside the New York office of the billionaire investor Bill Ackman, who helped lead a campaign that led to this week's ouster of the Harvard um, University president, the first black president of Harvard, uh, Claudine Gay. Ackman, Harvard alum, major donor of the university's publicly railed against Harvard and other schools for supporting DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Al Sharpton vowed to keep protesting outside Ackman's office. This is what he said. We have started these weekly one-hour protests in front of Mr. Ackerman's office. He has said that the resignation of Ms. Dr. Gay at Harvard is not the end of it. They're going to keep fighting to the end DEI, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's declaring a war on all of us, blacks, women, gays. DEI was designed to bring fairness and equality to people that had been historically marginalized and eliminated. So that's Al Sharpton. As part of his campaign to oust Gay as Harvard president, Bill Ackman helped amplify allegations that Gay committed plagiarism in her academic work. But now Ackman's wife, the MIT professor Neri Oxman, is facing a plagiarism scandal of her own. Business insiders revealed Oxman plagiarized parts of her doctoral dissertation at MIT. On Thursday, she apologized and admitted making mistakes. Of course, there was no plagiarism panel that was set up. That's the process at Harvard. That would evaluate um, President Gay before she was ultimately, I guess you could probably say, pushed out by Harvard Corporation with a lot of pressure from these major donors like Bill Ackman. Your response before we move into your book on corporate executives who did it right. What's uh, been revealed is the big donors to these universities, especially private universities like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, have been exercising their baleful influence for many years over the curriculum. You know, it's not uh, surprising that Harvard Law School uh, for, for decades never had a course on corporate law, corporate crime, rather. Uh, so these large donors now have been revealed to have enormous power over the board of overseers over Harvard University. And that's the next investigation for good news, student newspapers like the Harvard Crimson. The stuff on plagiarism, it, it could be serious, but not in this case, uh, given the review of the president's uh, past uh, 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 writings. But the, the, the big issue is the slaughter, is the uh, uh, suppression of speech on college campuses, dealing with the slaughter over there in, in Gaza. And the uh, fatality count uh, is, is grossly uh, undercounted. Uh, uh, 
Amy, I know you, you refer to the official uh, Hamas health authority count where they only count people whose names they know who died. And so it's over 22,000, 58,000 injury. This is a massive undercount. As the uh, head of the Global Health uh, Department, University of Edinburgh, said in an article in, in The Guardian the other day, there's going to be half a million Gazans who are going to die before the end of this year, not only from the bombing, but from the effect of the bombing in terms of the destruction of the health care system, infectious diseases, uh, polluted water, diarrhea, which little children, which is uh, often uh, a high rate of fatality and very quickly, lack of any food, no shelter, 85% of the 2.3 million people homeless. They have no connection to sanitation, food, protection, the winter elements. Uh, my uh, estimate now is at least 100,000 have died. And more will die every day because of the effects that I've just des described. The World Health Organization said they've never seen a situation like this in decades. Uh, the, the amount of number of children being killed in November, it was 150 a day from the Israeli bombing. And that's compared to uh, two a day in Afghanistan and less than one uh, a day in Ukraine. So that's that's the main issue, and, and at the campus uh, controversy, talking about slurs and ethnic slurs and so forth. What's behind it all is to uh, repress the academic world from speaking out and acting uh, on what our government is doing to make all this possible. And then we also have to have focus on these corporations. For a lot of this aid to Israel bounces back into contracts for uh, missiles, Raytheon, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, they're raking it in. And people talk about the lobby in this country supporting uh, any Israeli government uh, can do no wrong, no matter how extreme. Uh, we have to talk about the military-industrial complex here on Capitol Hill, pushing for more and more of these immense sales and profits. Uh, Ralph, you just wrote a book. Um, you are deeply critical right now of the corporations you just mentioned. But your book is The Rebellious CEO, 12 Leaders Who Did It Right. Some may be surprised to see you, this corporate critic, um, writing this book, uh, famous for Unsafe at Any Speed, The Designed in Dangers of the American Automobile, among other things. But in this last minute, and then we'll do a post-show interview, talk about why you wrote it. Because there's not enough uh, good yardsticks to evaluate the misbehavior of giant CEOs of these multinational corporations uh, who distort markets, control markets, but they tell you when you take, you criticize them for their munitions production, for opiates, for fossil fuels, for high drug prices. Well, we're just meeting market demand. Well, these 12 CEOs. They, uh, they made profit, but they reversed the business model, focusing on protecting, treating workers' right, consumers' right, uh, and environment. And they spoke out against war. They spoke out against uh, Amy, uh, Anita Roddick of Body Shop, spoke out against uh, the, the cosmetic industry's harm on, on young uh, customers. Ray Anderson changed Ralph, his entire— We have to leave it there, but we're going to do part two, post at democracynow.org. Ralph Nader, author of The Rebellion. CEO, 12 leaders who did it right. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.